All right, so uh, your outline at the top should say Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity Series, GCF 19 to 23 version. We, we anticipate finishing this in 2023. We started about mid-year last year. And we're looking at 15 emphases that we think need rediscovered. So today, like in the day of Jesus, the Gospels quote Jesus as saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their precepts or their doctrines the, the teachings of man. And I think we're in exactly the same position today in our so-called Bible-believing Christianity in Western culture. Um, if you know anything about the Pharisees, the Pharisees had created a culture where um, it was very common for everyone to know a lot of Scripture. If uh, the Pharisees were from the southern part of Israel, where the area is called Judea, which had the city of Jerusalem within it, and Idumea were, but Jesus was from the northern part of Israel, where the area is called... Uh, I like Nazareth and Capernaum, the city called Nazareth and Capernaum. The northern part was called Galilee. And to the east of the northern part was an area called the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis had a high percentage of Gentiles that lived in it. But uh, in, in Galilee, there was a very high percentage of whole towns were Jewish. And every town had a synagogue a place where the Jews gathered to study the word and to read the word. And kids grew up going to the synagogue daily because the synagogue, much like a small Christian private school is often church-based today, uh, the, the schools that kids went to were the synagogue. And uh, in the northern part of Israel where Jesus and most of the 12 disciples were from, you would memorize the first five books of Moses by the age of 12 and hundreds of other scriptures that were considered important. Some, like Saul of Tarsus, uh, who was not from Galilee, he was actually from a different country, but Saul grew up in such a way that he memorized the whole Old Testament by the time he was uh, an adolescent. Otherwise, we know that because Gamaliel who was Paul's discipler, would never have chosen Paul. He was the out, most outstanding of the Pharisees and only chose the best students who had memorized the whole Jewish scriptures. So you hear, based on Acts 4.20, uh, when the, uh, well, Acts, just before Acts 4.20, when the, when the uh, Sanhedrin says, that they observed that John and Peter were uneducated men, you hear a lot of American preachers today take that statement at face value as if, you know, like the Pharisees are a good source of information. Uh, uh, so you'll hear that Jesus picked ordinary, uneducated men. But that was just the Pharisees' assessment of them. And the Pharisees were snobs who basically believed if you didn't study in the synagogues in Judea, then you were like a backwoods uh, uh, bumpkin. And so uh, what they're basically, what they're saying is an insult. You didn't, it would be similar to someone from the East Coast saying, well, so-and-so uh, who, you know, who has a master's degree and doctorate is not really educated because they didn't go to an Ivy League school. You know, like your your master's degree is from Wright State, or you know, like can you even read? You know, <laughs> you know, and uh, that that was kind of an it was kind of a snobbish attitude thing. But actually, the disciples were very educated in the scriptures, so it was a time where it was very common to have a lot of biblical knowledge, but the paradigms for interpreting the scriptures were terrible. 
So God's people were missing the point of the very scriptures they knew. And that's why when Jesus came along and taught, the, the crowds marveled because he, they said, he's teaching like one who actually has authority. What they mean is he's teaching like one who actually understands what God is saying, and he's actually representing God accurately, not as their scribes, who taught a lot of nonsense. So what we're, what we're doing is not unprecedented in history. It was the very thing the early church did with the scriptures. When Paul talks about spending 14 years in Arabia, after he came to Christ, he spent 14 years studying the Jewish scriptures that he had memorized to, to, oh, to see what he'd been missing all along because he realized that, he, the, that God himself was living in their midst and he didn't have eyes to see it. And he couldn't recognize it because he had paradigms that screened out the knowledge of God. And likewise, that is evangelicalism today in a nutshell. So, uh, when we say rediscovering, what we're trying to do, we've, we've identified 15 of probably the top 17 to 20 most important uh, major themes of the Bible that we want to do a restudy and a rethink, and we want to say, is the Christianity in our culture all that biblical on these subjects? Even though we claim to be Bible-believing. So, for instance, uh, we uh, was number five, four the church? I think four is the church, right? Three is the church. Okay, thank you. So, for instance, uh, today, uh, I rarely meet someone who even knows biblically what they should be looking for in a church. Uh, for instance, in a church, there should be a lot more going on than see you on Sunday. It should be a community of believers that has both large group and small group. Uh, in the Bible, there, uh, God is one, yet God is three. It's a principle called the ontological trinity, and it's also referred to as the one in the many. And so uh, the Christians are called to meet together as a community on the Lord's Day, and everyone's called to, to, to be there at 9.30. I noticed a lot of people didn't make it at 9.30, including me today. Um, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. I made the mistake of going back to bed at 7 a.m. or 7.30 and th thinking I could get up at 8.30, and I didn't get up till about nine. But anyway, um, so, um, but the Christians met from house to house uh, throughout the week. They met in small groups. And this pattern is established from Acts chapter two on. And all churches practiced it. So many times today, we mostly know the people in our church uh, you know, on, on the Lord's Day. But, you know, there's a reason why we intentionally live in clusters uh, of people trying to live near and around each other so we can visit more often. You know, I, what was it, Tuesday night, Catherine and I uh, went on behalf of Jennifer Pett to uh, the Miami Valley Women's Center annual dinner to honor the people who made their Walk for Life work. And Jennifer did it, did that well this year again, but she couldn't attend for health reasons. You know, but on the way home, you know, we were like, well, we got about an hour before bedtime. Let's stop by John and Leah Gray's. <laughs> and we did. And, uh, and what's wonderful is uh, we do that often to the Gray's, probably every four to six weeks we'll just randomly stop. And sometimes, if Catherine's not with me, because she likes to get to bed at a normal hour, sometimes I'll be at, uh, you know, fellowshipping with John, sometimes even Leah, till 2 a.m. But, uh, you know, um, so just things like the church. You know, the church was always a plurality of elders. 
There's two, three primary words used for the local leadership of, of the local churches. Poimene, which is the word for shepherd, and translated in the King James Version as pastor in Ephesians 4.11, but every, in 16 other places in the King James Version, it's translated as shepherd because it means someone who really lives among the sheep and knows the sheep. He's not a professional guy whose qualifications are seminary. He's a professional guy who's, who protects you from the wolves and, and from the schemes of the enemy and, and from, uh, you know, sheep. One of the primary things sheep will do is they'll keep eating in the same place over and over and over again until all the food is gone and they're just trying to dig roots out of the mud and they're eating in their own excrement. And so what, you know, Psalm 23, when he talks about, he leads me beside still waters and green pastures, the shepherd is always causing the sheep to go eat somewhere else. You know, a good shepherd is always challenging you to grow in what you know about God and his word. That's why we have, you know, four different kinds of book lists. We have foundational articles. And soon, uh, weekly, Jeff Burks is going to be... we formed a little thing called the Education Community Committee, and uh, Nathan and Stephen and um, um, Mercy Lawson and uh, Noel and uh, Sydney. Where's Sydney at? I saw him earlier. There he is. Um, so they, um, you know, are going to help us be reminded of all these resources we've developed that a lot of people don't make full use of. But, you know, we, again, we have four different types of book lists, and you should know what they are and what, what, why they're helpful and why they're a guide. Uh, because Jesus said, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Helping the sheep know what to eat is one of the most important things you can do as a pastor. So that's all the, about rediscovering. And you have to, that has to happen before you can restore. You know, one of the things that's been interesting to watch since the uh, 50s, and it kind of accelerated with the mega churches of the 80s, is a lot of evangelical Christianity has come out of a lot of legalism into a lot healthier, more healthy expressions of what they think about moral issues and so forth less legalistic, less self-righteous, and so forth. But they've done it because of a, of a sense that all that legalism isn't healthy without any theological understanding of why. And so if you don't understand things like antinomianism and performance-based versus grace-based and so forth, you may come out of a certain amount of legalism, but you'll never quite know why it's right. You know, you, you know that it feels better. You know that it's less, you, you can sense it's, not, it's more healthy. But, but you don't really have any good sound theology as to why. So all, these things are important, re, rethinking. And rethinking is a necessary pre- prerequisite to restoring. So that's what we've been doing the last 10 or 11 months. And we'll continue to do for the next three or four years. Um, so if you look at Roman numeral five, Roman numeral five, uh, the first four kind of tell us what we did up until we, uh, I'm sorry, Roman numeral four tells us that what we did when we got to emphasis five, which is restoring the whole Bible as the word of God instead of parts. Now, uh, for a number of reasons in our culture, most Christians know primarily the New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, and perhaps Genesis. But not a lot of Christians know the whole Bible. And there are lots of theological reasons why. Now, you know, Christians may have read Isaiah or Ezekiel or Hosea but they don't really know how to place it in the context of what, how it helps the whole word of God's one message. The word of God, although on a, from a natural point of view, written by 40 human authors on three continents over 2,000 years, 
was written by one author, the Holy Spirit, through 40 men over 2,000 years and has one message, one predetermined purpose. In Hebrews 13, 20, it mentions the blood of the eternal covenant. God had a covenant within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before time was created. And, he, and that covenant was, to, was that, there would, that there would be a purpose that God would fulfill within himself by the Son of God coming to earth and becoming a man and dying for our sins after living a sinless life. And that God the Father and God the Spirit, because of the atonement made by God the Son, would gather a bride for the Son for the rest of history. So, um, the Bible's vision in, in uh, some of the retreatist, alarmist, escapist, things are getting worse and worse. NEM, NEM, Toto, you know, uh, it's a twister, run for it, and all that kind of mentality is not the Bible's mentality. The Bible's mentality is that we're here to take dominion. And the the difference is the way the worldly people think about dominion is a submission through power, and God's dominion is a submission through love. All right, so uh, jumping down to Roman numeral 8, uh, I guess it's been, um, <laughs> I don't, I guess, I I think uh, three weeks ago or so, we began to look at the Pentateuch, that's Roman numeral seven. And uh, so we uh, talked about the books of Moses, also called Torah, law, etc. Then we've looked at that now for like three straight weeks. And last week, we uh, started talking about 10 major emphases that are in the book of Genesis. They're further developed in the rest of the books of Moses. Then they're further developed in the historical books, further developed in the prophets and wisdom literature, and finally uh, fully developed in the New Testament. And so um, last week of 10 major emphasis that we've identified, we talked about six of them. The first five are at the bottom of your page. And I'm not, for sake of time, going to review them, or I'll have no time to get into the last four today. If you flip over, last week we ended by talking about covenant. And one of the reasons this major emphasis thing is important, again, there are various ideas and very strong forces that are dividing the Word of God up in such a way that no one's putting it back together, and it's not one cohesive, coherent message. And that the uh, philosophy called dispensationalism, which is the number one philosophy in, in, uh, in evangelical circles, uh, brings layers of confusion to people's thinking about the Bible. And whether you grew up in church or not, I, I remember working with my dear friend John Bradbury, oh, seven or so, eight years ago when he was first coming to Christ. And uh, although he'd been to church about two to three times in his entire life uh, and had no, un, no biblical knowledge or so, so forth, he had lots of evangelical ideas in his mind about the Bible. Because it's part of our culture. And so, uh, as we look at these major themes, one of the importances of these major themes is they give cohesiveness and unity to the whole Bible. In other words, for each of these, uh, let's go back and pick dominion. Dominion is, uh, has the same root word as kingdom, and you should be able to think of the idea of the kingdom of God from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus spoke primarily about the kingdom of God. One of the four Gospels, Matthew, 
calls it the kingdom of heaven, and there's a reason for that. Matthew's target audience was the Jews, and Matthew is uh, not like evangelicals think today that Matthew was written to the Jews uh, as an evangelistic tool primarily. Matthew is a covenant lawsuit. It's actually, Matthew is when, when when a husband serves a wife divorce papers because she's been unfaithful repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. That's exactly what Matthew is. Matthew is the divorce papers. And so Jesus says in Matthew uh, 21 and 22 and so forth, uh, the kingdom will be taken away from the people of Israel and it will be given to a nation that produces the fruit of it. And then because the heart of that nation had been since the time of David, the city of Jerusalem, Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, which is very symbolic. If you go back and study Gerzim and uh, Ebal, and he cries over the city, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your, your chicks together under my wings like a mother hen gathers the chicks. How I gather you together like a mother hen gathers the chicks. But you would not have it. And then he says, behold, your house. Now, three chapters earlier, he had called, called the temple his house. And he had been upset and thrown the money changers out uh, because they were using the court of the Gentiles to, to sell animals for sacrifice. He wasn't upset that they were selling, uh, like so many uh, communistic thinkers today think. God's the inventor of free enterprise. <laughs> He's, he has no communistic tendencies. Um, but but he's, he's upset what, where they're doing it. They're doing it in the area of the temple that was set aside to reach out to the surrounding nations called the court of the Gentiles because they hated the surrounding nations so much they didn't perceive themselves as having any evangelistic mission to the nations. You can't lead someone to Christ that you don't love. People ask, like, what's the secret of, of uh, leading people to Christ? And I, I'll tell you, the, the most fruitful people I know are people who, you know, love the people they're, that they're, you know, I, I've never prayed with someone to receive Christ the first time I talked to them. If they seem like they're ready for that, I tell them, you're not ready. <laughs> Let's not do that today. And they'll, maybe they've read tracks like, well, what if I die tonight? Well, if God's calling you, you won't die tonight. <laughs> if he's not calling you, oh, well. But uh, no, just kidding. Um, you know, in, in, in Matthew 13, the four different types of soil, there's one that immediately receives the word with joy, yet they have no firm root in themselves. Anyone who could hear the gospel message and, and be ready to receive it doesn't understand, is, is shallow, and their grasp of it is shallow. Anyone. That's what Jesus is saying, not me. All right, so covenant... Um, since we ended up there last week, is kind of uh, the most important of these 10 subjects in terms of the fact that it unifies the whole Bible. Galatians 3.15, I had it open in my, uh, oh, closed it up, always doing that. Talks about, uh, well, we'll go there. Hopefully I can get there quick. My phone's a little slow. We should have some Jeopardy music. Do, 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 Almost. All right, here we go. Genesis 3.15, or Galatians 3.15. Did I say, I keep saying Genesis. Galatians. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it's a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. 
right? So one of the most important things to understand is the Bible has uh, eight progressive covenants. It starts with the eternal covenant, which existed between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before time and space were created in the material realm. Then it goes on to the covenant with the four covenants that are listed at the top of your page two there, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic, Abrahamic, and Mosaic. All four of those covenants uh, come to us in the Pentateuch, in the five books of Moses, right? As well as uh, between the Adamic covenant and the Noahic covenant, you should uh, insert the marriage covenant. Because marriage was created by God, not by men. One of the craziest things that's going on in our out-of-control, wacky world today is all sorts of redefinitions of what marriage is. And even Christians want to define marriage as the way they they want it to be. But you didn't invent marriage, and you don't have any right to tinker with it. God created marriage, and he made the covenant parameters for marriage. And it's his covenant. Now, when, as God unfolds these covenants, none of them negate the previous covenants. They fulfill the previous covenants. And most of them are, are steps that are, that are necessary Because a covenant is always between two or more parties. And the biblical covenants are what's called Susandry covenants. They're the covenants that existed in the ancient world, like Hammurabi and Hammurabi's Code, if you know what that means. And nations like Mesopotamia, uh, ancient Babylon, the, the Medes, the Persians, the Assyrians, all that. And these were covenants imposed by a feudal lord upon his subjugated vassals and people. And they first introduce the feudal lord, and then they say, I have benevolently, 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 can I say that? It's lucky for you <laughs> it's, it, that, that I conquered you. <laughs> and uh, you should have it so good. And now that I've conquered you, I'm going to do the following things for you, and I'm going to require the following things from you. And because of the nature of man's fall, the, the next truth we're going to hopefully get to in a second, uh, what, what um, happens is every covenant in the Bible is broken by the recipients of the covenant, mankind. We, the Bible, made, it, one of its primary emphasis from Genesis to Revelation is to open our eyes to the depth of our sin, which in biblical thinking is that we are primarily covenant breakers. We can't keep the covenant. And so God, as he moves forward, is actually uh, fulfilling the terms of one covenant and giving another covenant because he's moving toward his predetermined eternal plan called the new covenant in which he would not only uh, create the covenant, but he would atone for the covenant breaker's sins and he would empower the recipients of the covenant to be covenant doers, to be covenant obeyers. That's why Paul calls it in Romans 1 and Romans 15, the obedience of faith. The covenant, the new covenant, uh, like all the covenants, is a covenant of faith. Like all covenants, is a covenant of grace working through faith. But the the difference is that finally by the new covenant, God is promising the, the delivery systems of grace to cause us to become covenantly faithful. Now, um, 
So the next, then, uh, so Roman numerals 10, four more biblical themes. I'm, uh, boy, I'm going to go over it today. I'm sorry. One, uh, number seven, the fall of man. The fall of man is introduced in Genesis 3. All of these, uh, all 10 of these ideas start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and continue to be developed throughout the Bible. The fall of man brings uh, sin, and it's not just that we're sinners. We're sinners in the sense that we constitutionally have a problem with sin. So there's sins, you know, and there's sin. And sin is a power that resides in every human being that was birthed in human beings and passed down genetically when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And sin has all kinds of uh, aspects to it. Pride, self-righteous, know-it-all, rebellious, self-determining, and so forth. And that uh, sin brings about spiritual death, which, which includes estrangement from God, broken covenants, broken relationship, and all covenants have sanctions. So there's blessings for obeying, and there's curses or, or consequences for disobedience. And God tells Adam and Eve, on the day you eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And they did die spiritually. But if you remember, God comes later that day, says in the cool of the day, he came looking for Adam and Eve, and he asked where they were, and then he, when they said we were afraid because we, you know, we were naked and so forth, and he said, did you eat of the tree and so forth, and that whole confrontation in Genesis 3, God creates animal skins for them to cover their nakedness, which means he, he establishes the, the, the major biblical idea of substitutionary atoning death. So they don't die surely the, uh, uh, the day uh, as God had promised because of God's mercy, although they died spiritually and they were estranged from God relationally, and they became subject to a power that caused them to be prideful, uh, self-determining, got gods in their own minds and heart. Uh, he, he atoned for their sins and, a, and a chose an animal to die instead. And that starts the principle of substitutionary death, which is one of the major themes of the Bible. And... Uh, and uh, finally fulfilled in Christ. Now, another major theme is redemption. Redemption includes all kinds of ideas like reconciliation, adoption. Uh, I love when I know, like my, you know, our good friend uh, Steve Woodman has uh, one biological child of their own. I don't know uh, the details of why they weren't able to have any more children, but they weren't, and, and they have, uh, I believe, four Adopted children, three or four. Uh, I love adoption because all of us are adopted. We're, this is an adoption family here. Every church is filled with adopted people. If you're truly Christian. So the, that redemption is first prophesied in what's called the Proto-Evangel, which is Genesis 3.15, where he says, I'll put enmity between your seed and, and the serpent seed, and you'll crush him on the head, he'll bruise you on the heel, and all that. Uh, ninth emphasis is salvation by faith working through grace. Genesis 1, the Adamic covenant, was a, was a covenant of grace. It was salvation working through grace. They had to have faith in what God had commanded them not to eat. And it was because they doubted that, that they disobeyed. Paul talks about the obedience of faith. They had the disobedience of doubt. And as Tim Keller points out so well in his book, The Reason for God, doubt is actually a type of faith. 
It's a faith in they believe the serpent and their own reason and their desire to be God instead of God's word. And all doubts have, a, have an attack on the character of God in them. And so they cut themselves off from the grace of God that was abundantly available to, to uh, stay in relationship with, by, with God by obedience. All covenants, even the new covenant, uh, ha- have obedience. And there's sanctions for disobedience. And there's blessings for obedience. And every covenant of the Bible has that. We're going to look at covenant in detail in, in weeks to come. And finally, the principle of blood sacrifice or substitutionary atonement um, is introduced in Genesis 3.21 when God creates an animal skin to clothe them because you can't clothe yourself with an animal skin unless someone kills the animal. That's why the, whatever they're called, the PETA or what, uh, what are the animal protection kind of people don't like trapping and they don't like fur coats and and so forth, because you can't have a fur coat unless an animal died. You might have a fake fur coat, but, but you can't have a real one. All right, um, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna have to breeze through some important material quite fast because it's also our communion meditation. So, one of the things that Genesis one gives us. Again, so many truths in the Bible start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and those three chapters are worth years of study. So one of those is that God created the world in six days. And when he did so, he took five steps. There was a five-fold process to his creation, and man, who was made in God's image, is called to take dominion, that is to bring things under God's kingdom, and we do it by the same five-fold process, except ours is a six-fold process, because we are not the creator. Therefore, we must add giving thanks. Giving thanks is the ultimate way that we uh, operate in uh, grace working through faith. It was because Adam and Eve took of the, uh, they stepped out of the covenant of grace by partaking of the tree, not the fruit, the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and therefore they didn't trust God nor give thanks. You can't give thanks and disobey at the same time. So what they did is they ate a covenant meal with the serpent breaking covenant, the covenant of grace that they had been granted by God, their creator. All covenants are based in grace. And the Susan Tree Lord graciously gave it to them. So the first thing is that God takes hold of his creation. Now God, because he's God, does so by his word. All, he just says, then God said. And so I've listed all the places in Genesis 1 there where the, God said and there was light, etc. God takes hold of the tools and the materials. Man, you know, when man does it, we, we might grab a bottle of water from the refrigerator. You know, we take hold of something. Secondly, I have it indented a little bit so you can realize this is a step that God doesn't need. God doesn't have to thank himself. You know, Daniel doesn't, uh, you know, when he's saying grace for dinner, he doesn't say, thank you, Daniel, for having this engineering job that provided this food, you know, and being such a great guy. And, uh, (laughs) you know, Christiana might say thank you, and Daniel might say thank you to God for his life, for the ability to work, for the fact that he has a job, that he has brains enough to have an engineering degree and all this kind of stuff, but he, but he doesn't thank Daniel. That would be kind of silly, right? 
I thank you, Lord, for me. <laughs> um, probably some people do that. So man gives thanks, uh, with the word Eucharist, a conscious act of self-submission to God. That's what thanks is. Thanksgiving acknowledges that I didn't create any of this. I don't deserve any of this. All these things, every good gift and every perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights, James says. So giving thanks is ultimately by grace working through faith. It's an affirmation, it's an obedience, it's worship, and it's the absolute key to all dominion, the way the Bible defines dominion, because remember, Jesus teaches us the king of the Gentiles, they lord it over each other. But it's not so among you. The leader, the great one among you, the one who takes dominion is the servant of all. Jesus has a whole different view of what leadership is and what taking dominion is. If you want to be head of your household, do the dishes. You know, so, and uh, go to the Onvest School of Cooking or something like that. So, uh, next, God restructures the creation. Step two for God, step three of the, with, for man. He separates it. That is, he makes it glorious. That's why he says he did this, this, and this. Then he evalu- we're going to get to he evaluates, but he says it's good. He makes it good. He separates the firmament below from the firmament above. He separates the waters from the waters, the, the waters of the sea from the waters that were in the heavens until Noah's flood. He separates the water from the land. That is God restructures the creation. Light from darkness, water from below, etc., uh, he separates the nations eventually in Genesis 12. Now, man imitates this by, we do things like we mine for materials. We grab a book off the shelf and we separate it from the other books. It's no longer a book that we might have enjoy our, how well organized it is by subjects or by author or whatever. And we, this book is now the book that we have on our desk that the, that we're per, or by our bedside or wherever, we're, that this is the book we're reading now. So we reorganize. We restructure. Um, we do this with tools, with housework, and so forth. Fourthly, we distribute the work. Uh, God's firmament... Uh, uh, he, he assigned to the firmament the sun, moon, and stars. He assigned to the sea, the fish, and all the creatures. He assigned to the land animals all the creeping creeps. I always say the creeps that creeped all over the land. <laughs> and, uh, uh, the, you know, he gave the, the birds the sky and so forth. Uh, then he gives the entire creation to mankind. In other words, man is to rule over the seas and the the fish of the seas and so forth. So I have aquariums. Um, It's part of taking dominion. Uh, (laughs) Taking dominion over the angelfish. Um, So then fifthly, God evaluates his work. Uh, So God saw all that he had made, and every time he evaluates his work, he says it's good, except one. When? When he finished. You know, so many of us uh, do a, a half blank job, and when it's not finished, it's not very good. It's very good when it's finished. And in this case, the crown of his creation is, is man, mankind, and he creates them husband and wife, he creates them naked. He creates them primarily for fellowship. If you study the nature of marriage throughout all of Scripture, it's companionship. That's why he says there was no uh, helpmate suitable for Adam. He needed a companion like unto himself. 
that they could share not only the labors, but they could share everything about themselves. And incidentally, he created them naked and for sexuality, and then he said it was very good. Up till then, it was just good. So he evaluates his work, and that's, in, you know, for, man, for human beings, even when we eat a meal, uh, you know, um, we had a lovely dinner, say, at the Osbournes, and you know, after we tasted, uh, she made a lovely beef, like a stew with, uh, you know, carrots and potatoes and all this, and beef and all this kind of stuff. And so after you taste it, then you say, oh, this is really good. We don't wait to say it's really good until you're finished consuming it. You, you evaluate it after the first bite, right? Don't you? And when you, care, when you cook for someone and you care about your cooking or whatever, You'll even say, well, how do you like it? You know, like, uh, and, uh, and you say that after the first bite. So God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And lastly, uh, God enjoys his work. Uh, the Sabbath is never apart from creation. It's part of creation. It's inside the creation. Uh, the entire point of creation is that Scripture is way beyond creation, uh, it's the sanctuary of heaven coming fully to the people, the temple of God coming to earth. And we see this in Eden. Eden is the kingdom of heaven coming to a garden. Then the, the kingdom comes uh, in the wilderness by God telling them how to make a temple, a tabernacle for his presence. That's why there's 20 chapters of detail about how to make the tabernacle in, in, in Exodus 21 through 40. And if you start around chapter 33 of Exodus, you'll see over and over again that Moses made this, this, and the other, and then he made it this way. And, and, and you'll go, it's strange wording to a Western thinker because it's repeating exactly what God told him to do. So he made it with blue thread and, you know, brass clasps and, and certain 40 of them and whatever, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And it keeps saying, like, just as the Lord had commanded, it's like, I got that. You know, like, no, no you didn't. It, it's just as the Lord has commanded Moses. And it goes into minute detail because we can't carry the presence of God just any old way. That's the cancer of American Christianity. We don't even try to have the government of our churches be according to biblical terminology. or we, we don't try to take the Bible that seriously about much of anything in our Bible-believing Christianity. It's all just kind of a feely-feely, uh, and we have like a few biblical points mixed in with a lot of other craziness in our doctrines of being born again or whatever, but... The, the Bible gives detail about everything. And the point, the tabernacle in the wilderness, Solomon's temple, the rebuilt temple of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Ezekiel's temple, then, then in the, when Jesus, before he came, uh, God ordained that the Romans had conquered uh, Israel, and that they had been building Herod's temple. And that was complete when Jesus was a baby. And Jesus went there to be dedicated to the Lord and circumcised at eight days. And he goes there again at age 12 to start asking uh, questions of the Pharisees and so forth. And then John, uh, the great, uh, not just John Gray, but, the, uh, but John the Apostle, gives us in his great gospel, and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That's what the Greek means. The, the, in other words, the, you know, when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, 
it's because he is the tabernacle of God. He's the whole point. And then upon his, upon his death, burial, and resurrection, at his coronation, God the Father pours the oil of the Holy Spirit on Jesus' head, as you do when you're ordaining a king. And just like it says in Psalm 133 or 131, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the you know, mountains of Zion. It's like the oil coming down upon Aaron's beard, even to the edge of his robe. God pours the oil upon his son Jesus to anoint him as king of all the universe. And that oil spills down his beard, down his robes, past his feet, into the earth below, and it was called the day of Pentecost. And it's still pouring. And it will pour until his feet, that is the church, has dominion over every nook, cranny, and corner of this earth. Because Jesus is king of all and Lord of all. Till every marriage has been saved, till every... Uh, till you know, kids are being raised right. Till, till uh, peace and power and harmony dwell in every home. That oil is still flowing, and that oil is what we need. So when God enjoys His work, uh, as in Genesis three, or as in Genesis one and two. It's always in the context of sanctuary. God is bringing the fullness of his kingdom into this temple and every temple. Individually, we're temples. Local churches are temples. Churches together, whether, whether we like the Baptist down the street or the Methodist or the Presbyterians, they're part of, the, of a temple that we're part of. And so you better start getting to like them because we'll be at the same potluck dinners and so forth forever. <laughs> and you might as well like Presbyterian fried chicken. <laughs> so let's apply this five-fold building pattern, even though I'm already five minutes past schedule, um, to uh, what Jesus did on the Lord's Supper. If I can. First, they're sitting at, you know, they're at the Passover supper. It's a Passover supper. It's not just any supper. There's a cup in the middle of the table called the cup. It's the cup for Elijah. And Jesus takes hold of the bread and later the cup. Step one, he takes hold. Step two, he gives thanks. That's why we call communion Eucharist, because it's the Greek word for thanksgiving. And everything that is represented by God giving us his body and his blood, he gave to a people who don't deserve it. A people who deserve to be eternally perished. Yet he chose, for whatever reasons, that we'll never understand to have Daniel Williams and Sydney be his people. Jane Huang and Adam Verlo. So he, secondly, he gives thanks for the bread and later the wine. Thirdly, he restructures the bread. He breaks it and he renames it. This is my body. Then he restructures the wine. Says, this is my blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Shed for forgiveness of sin for all. The life is in the blood. Then he distributes it, number four. His body and blood to all who are present in the meal. Fifthly, they all partake, that is, they taste. And as we said, when you evaluate, you, you evaluate it at the first taste. And they all evaluated it as good 
except Judas. He was a covenant breaker. And what, you know, the reason the church has put so much more emphasis on communion than we do is because the church has always understood covenants. And covenants are God's initiate with God, and they are eternal. And this is one of the most sacred things that we do. You know, we kind of get it for weddings. We get special dresses and special outfits for the men and have candles and whatever, all sorts of various things to say, this is really not common or ordinary. This is holy. This is special. This is a covenant before God and man. But that, as we've said many times, every covenant has ceremonies of initiation and it has ceremonies of renew. And just like in the Old Testament when like uh, they read the, they found the book of the law in Josiah's, uh, Maddox's day. And, uh, and they, uh, re, they, they have a covenant celebration. And that covenant celebration always includes the vows. The vows are the most important part. That's why if you look at the Last Supper in John's version, John 13, 14, 15, 16, Jesus tells us, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. And I don't give you a new commandment. And he says, I do give you a new commandment. And the new commandment is to love one another. You know, when someone tells me so-and-so is spiritual, I say, who are they spiritual with? Because to the degree your relationships are good and healthy, to that degree you know God. To not be skilled at relationships is the most major fundamental flaw you can have in your walk with God because he is a person. And that's why from the time you're born, you're born into covenant family. And you learn how to relate. And the quality of your marriage and the quality of your relationships with your brothers is, tells you where you're really at spiritually. There's lots of very prideful people who don't do that well in, with the relationships of like marriage or church or raising kids or whatever. And that's actually God's gift to you. God is trying to open your eyes like, you think you're over here spiritually, but you really are not. Where you are is directly proportional to how well you do relationships. That's the only really good indicator of where you're at with God. Because he's not a theoretical God. He's a relational God. And the, the Christ that I'm supposed to love is sent to me over and over and over again in the persons of people that aren't that easy to love. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. That is a wonderful thing. That boss that you have that's not so easy to love... Thank, that's God's gift to you. Deanna, that boss that you have, that's not so you know. <laughs> so they all partake of the bread and the wine, and they value it as good. And finally, the disciples remain and enjoy fellowship with Jesus. It even says they sang a hymn, and they go to, uh, by way of the brook Kidron, which if you get out of Jerusalem map, you can see the actual path that they traveled from the upper room to the, to the Garden of um, Gethsemane, right? And, uh, um, of course, there, there's an olive uh, grow garden to, there to this day. And um, that's why Jesus says, couldn't you uh, watch with me one brief hour? You know, he's saying, hey, um, you know, um, 
recently, I, not, not to complain or anything, just to illustrate, but recently my back's been so bad I can barely stand up most of the time. And, and I, um, you know, my, my dear wife, who's often exhausted or whatever from a day of work, I'll say, do you have enough strength or whatever to make me a couple scrambled eggs or something? And, you know, like she's done so much of that lately that it's, uh, I try not to ask for much like that. But, um, you know, it, the blessing that is, like what Jesus is saying is, is, is like it's kind of when, you, this this happens in families all the time. Like someone says, could you take out the trash or whatever? There's taking out the trash, then there's taking out the trash. And what I mean by that. Sometimes there's a time where, um, you know, you do it because this person's had an extra hard day. Does that make sense? Like, I I don't know how to to describe this. What what happened in the garden that's so interesting is that when they couldn't, the disciples couldn't stay awake. Uh, Some of you uh, used to have that problem with my messages. No. Poor, poor John Weiss used to get very upset when uh, certain guys fell asleep all the time when he was first learning to do the teachings and stuff. But it's what Jesus is saying, like this, this is like the most intense hour he's ever faced. And you guys are the guys I've poured everything I know, everything I feel, everything I think, my whole mission, my heart, I've tried to tell you who the Father is. I've tried to tell you what the eternal covenant is. I've tried to tell you that we're here to take over the world in a very different sort of way than men think about it. I've, I've tried to tell you all this stuff, and now I need something back from you. You know, I'm about to be uh, arrested, falsely accused, betrayed by one of my followers, Got that out of order, but he thought, you know what I'm saying. And I'm I'm gonna be uh, the there's it's gonna be the sham mock trial, where in the name of, of Moses's law they break every aspect of Moses's law about trials. And and finally there's gonna be this spurious uh, verdict. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna take the weight of the sin of the whole world upon myself. So you know, like in Isaiah 53 and quoted in Second Corinthians 5, he didn't just take every sin that's ever been committed, but he took the he took sin itself. Um, you know, Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, some of these chapters can give us uh, a little bit of a nudge in the right direction, but we'll never understand what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane at the trial at, while carrying his cross. You know, Stephen pointed out the other week in, in that when at Abraham put this, those sticks on the, this is what you miss if you don't come on Wednesday nights. Abraham put the sticks on Isaac's back. That was a foreshadowing of Christ uh, carrying the wooden cross on his back. And then, you know, what Jesus went through on the cross. And, and the amazing, amazing thing of one guy mocks to the very end. And the other guy has his eyes open to who's hanging next to him. Like that's one of the greatest things that ever happened in history. You know, he uh, one guy is, you know, says, "Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom." And both of these guys were members of the Zealot Party. That means they were murderers. We always say the thief on the cross, but they weren't thieves; they were murderers. Which, in my book, is a little worse than being a thief. And yet, like, um, every, every once in a while, I'll say to some friend, like, you know, Daniel Williams, like, hey, Daniel, that I'm going to do share with this person, and this is going to be a really difficult for me. Would you go with me? 
you know, I, I just need somebody, like I need a friend to be with me or something. That's kind of what's going on. Uh, so the communion meal is about all these things, the five-fold process, uh, really the six-fold process that man goes through to take dominion. Jesus actually shows us in the communion meal the pattern of true worship and the pattern of true obedience. Everything you go to do this week, you're going to go to your job and take hold of things. And you're going to give thanks, and you're going to restructure them, and you're going to distribute them. If you make a product or a service, you know, uh, Sydney doesn't just make hand sanitizer so they can have a big warehouse full of hand sanitizer. They distribute it. Occasionally, Sydney distributes some of it to his friends. <laughs> but, uh, and so forth. So let's uh, have John Gray and Anvesh and Daniel come. Um,